John chapter 3, if I could invite you to meet me there, that would be great. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. Don's in the back. He'd be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. There's a note page in your bulletin. If you wouldn't mind retrieving that, I would appreciate that as well. And if you haven't silenced your cell phone, could we ask you to do that too? It's a lot to ask, but (laughs) please do that for us. That'll be, we'll all be grateful for that. Most of us know the name Charles Schultz, right? You would know that name. Yeah, world famous cartoonist, the creator of the Peanuts cartoon with Charlie Brown and Snoopy and Lucy and Linus and all the other characters. Schultz was not only a Christian, but he was a wonderful student of human nature. He usually wove some kind of a lesson or point into his cartoons that would expose our character traits or our tendencies. And man, he was a a master at doing that. In one of his cartoons, Linus and Charlie Brown are having a conversation. And Linus says to Charlie, when I get big, I'm going to be a humble little country doctor. I'll live in the city, see? And every morning I'll get up, climb into my sports car, and zoom into the country. And then I'll start healing people. And I'll heal people for miles around. And then in the next frame, then at the end of the day, I'll get back in my sports car and I'll come all the way back to the city. And then in the last frame, Linus exclaims, I'll be a world-famous, humble little country doctor. (laughs) And we chuckle at that because we know that Charles Schultz is up to something. He's poking fun at how difficult it is for us to be humble. We may start out with the goal of being a humble little whatever, but before we know it, we're looking to be a world-famous humble whatever. Pride is arguably the most deadly and evil of all the sins because it is at the root of of all other sins, as you know. You name any other sin, and pride will be present in some form. Pride was probably the sin that Satan committed first, the very first sin, the original sin, when he said, I will make myself like the Most High. Pride certainly was the bait that Satan used to tempt Eve when he deceptively assured her that if she ate of that forbidden fruit in the garden, then she would be like who? She'd be like God, right? Genesis chapter 3, Adam bought into that lie as well with her. And of course, the human race tragically was plunged into sin and to death. Whenever you and I sin, we are arrogantly asserting our will over God's will. We're saying, it's really about me. That's, That's pride, isn't it? That's pride. Even as devoted followers of Jesus, we must constantly battle pride. Church family, today, pride and humility come into view in the next part of our study of John's gospel. Today, we're looking closely at verses 22 to 36 of chapter 3. And I may not be exaggerating when I say to you that this could be 
The only time you will ever hear this passage taught on a Sunday morning in church in your lifetime. And I'm serious when I say that. And the reason I say that is because the first 21 verses of chapter 3 get all of the attention as Jesus encounters Nicodemus and tells him about being born again and and about how he'll be lifted up on a cross. And, and of course, there's verse 16 of chapter 3, the most famous verse in the Bible. And then it's on to chapter 4, and the woman at the well, that amazing encounter that Jesus has with her, where we're going to be next Sunday, Lord willing. And so verses 22 to 36 often get just passed right over. And yet here in this section of John, as we move faithfully through this wonderful book together, we get to hear John the Baptist today deliver one of the most incredible, amazing, profound, and powerful one-liners of spiritual truth that there is in the entire Bible. He is going to say, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John chapter 3, verse 30. Oh, man, fellow Christian brother, sister, if we can get our hearts and our minds and our wills around this one sentence, I mean, really allow this statement to take hold of us and own us It has the potential, I believe, to change everything in our lives going forward. And I do mean everything. I'm not not just saying that to make an overblown statement for effect this morning. If we own this sentence, and I mean really own it, it can change everything. That's the truth. I never cease to be amazed at how the Holy Spirit puts things together for us as a church family. Because we're in the perfect place this morning for these words. He must increase, I must decrease to, to come to us today. This is the last Sunday of the year. 2019 will be done in just a couple days. The next time that you and I meet, we're going to be in 2020. Sounds pretty futuristic, doesn't it? What better challenge and charge could we get from God to take into a new year than this charge out of verse 30? What better goal could be set before us than this goal? Truly, we we couldn't have scripted it. I, I certainly could not have plotted this out months ago and said, hmm, how can we be in John chapter 3, verse 30 on December the 29th? I'm just not that good. I I just don't have that kind of planning skill. So I look at this and I think, man, this is a God thing. He must increase, I must decrease, is apparently what the Holy Spirit wants us to seriously embrace and believe a call, a creed, a challenge, a conviction for us to take individually, but also collectively as a church all the way through the coming year. This is perfect. He must increase. I must decrease. And not just just say that with our mouths, but really own it. Really live it. 
it could change everything. It could change everything for us individually, everything for us as a church family. Now, as we step into this portion of John, if there was anyone who could have potentially stepped into the trap of pride and then been swallowed up by it, it could have been John the Baptist. Who else in human history, apart from Jesus himself, could claim to have been filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb? And yet that's exactly what an angel announced to John's father, Zacharias, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15. And we're just coming out of the Christmas holidays. So you probably read that passage, that story about John coming uh, as a result of, of that angel's announcement. Holy Spirit filled before birth? That could be a place for pride to creep in. And not only is John's spirit filled before birth, but, but no one else in human history had the prophetic role that John has of being the herald, the forerunner, the announcer for the coming of Jesus. He will be the last Old Testament prophet, and he'll have the most incredible message. The Messiah isn't just coming, he's what? Man, he's here. He is here. No other prophet got to say that. All the other Old Testament prophets could say the Messiah is coming. But John got to say he's here. That could be a place for pride. And when we met John for the very first time in our study of the book, chapter 1, you may recall that John is incredibly popular Tens of thousands from all over Israel trek out to the Judean desert, to the Jordan River, to see John and to hear him, to hear a message calling for people to repent of their sins and get ready because God's deliverer is on scene. He was by far the most popular person of his day, more popular than the king. But the greatest compliment that could have caused pride for John was that Jesus said, He's the greatest man in human history. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus will say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now Jesus said that. And keep in mind that that John is barely in his 30s When all of this unfolds, any one of these things could have led to pride creeping into his life to say nothing of all of them kind of converging on him at the same time. And yet that's not their effect. In fact, John goes in exactly the opposite direction, uttering one of the widest, deepest, most penetrating, humble statements ever spoken. When he says about his relationship to Jesus... He must increase and I must decrease. Let's read the text and see what's going on. Beginning at verse 22, John 3. After this, so sometime after Jesus' night visit with Nicodemus, which is verses 1 through 21, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. 
Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Stop right there. John the Apostle, who is writing this gospel, takes us into two thriving ministries in this moment. The growing ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist's ongoing ministry. Both are happening now at the same time. And John frames this in almost like a a Jesus versus John kind of a way, setting the stage for John's beautiful statement to be uttered in verse 30. What Jesus is doing and what John are doing are taking place in close proximity on the Jordan River. Time has erased the exact location of Anan, but but both John and Jesus are engaged in immersing people in water at the river, people who are sincerely looking for the arrival of God's Messiah, the fulfillment of all of those promises that God had, had made in the Old Testament about a deliverer coming. And if you remember from chapter 1, this is a baptism of repentance, an acknowledging of sin in one's life, and a desire to to be washed spiritually clean when God's promised deliverer arrives. Being immersed in water was was kind of a symbolic picture of a heart that desired to be made clean. It's different from our thought. When we think of baptism today, we think of believer's baptism because, because that's, that's all we've ever really known. But that's not what's in view here because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. And so after the cross being made spiritually clean, well, that's going to happen from the inside out, isn't it? That's how you're going to be made clean through faith in the Lord Jesus, his death and his resurrection. You'll be made clean from the inside out. But, but that's not possible yet and so here it's kind of a an outside in ritual baptism revealing the longing heart of those who are awaiting the messiah now john will make it very clear in chapter 4 verse 2 that jesus himself does not baptize anyone he charges his disciples with that task and so jesus is out in the the, the desert and he's preaching the kingdom of god and lots of people are coming to him out into the country and believing his message, repenting of their sins, and they're being baptized by his disciples. John the Baptist's ministry continues as well, calling people to repent because the Messiah is actually here. He's on scene. Be baptized as a public expression of your readiness to meet him. Well, somewhere along the line, a strict Jew who remains nameless takes issue with John's baptism, with his approach to baptism. And he voices this to John the Baptist's disciples. The strictest Jewish sects were quite adamant about ceremonial washings for all kinds of things, hands and head, and and and, and, and there was no direct commandment in Scripture for doing this, but it was just kind of a tradition that had grown up Over time, generation to generation had been handed down. And and you may recall when we were in chapter 2 in Cana and uh, Jesus turns water into wine. Do you remember the stone pots filled with water? We're told in chapter 2, verse 6, those pots were 
full of water for purification purposes. So John's disciples are hashing this issue out with this guy who then apparently brings up the fact that Jesus is attracting far more people than John is. Jesus' ministry is growing. John's ministry is declining. And so the disciples of John come to him. And they say, Rabbi or teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You can almost hear it, can't you? The edgy resentment in John's disciples. After all, baptism was, John, was, was what John himself was known for. I mean, he was the baptizer, right? Now this newcomer is upstaging him and everybody's going to him. Now doubt that was an exaggeration. People were still coming to John, but clearly more were now going to Jesus. These disciples fall into a trap. They fall into the trap of comparing one thing to another thing, one ministry to another ministry, one leader to another leader. They fall into that trap. Boy, aren't you glad, brothers and sisters here at IBC, that as 21st century Christians, we don't do that anymore? Aren't you glad? I mean, comparing churches, comparing pastors, parishioners, programs, buildings, and budgets. Aren't you glad that we don't do that anymore? Oh, man, comparison, it it has its roots in pride and jealousy and self-promotion and protecting your name and your reputation. It was happening in the first century. It happens in the 21st century, doesn't it? Well, John's disciples, as they are coming to him, clearly expect that when John hears about this, at the very least, he's going to be deeply hurt. And maybe he'll even be angry. You can feel the tension. John the Apostle is creating this tension in the text. You can just feel it. They expect hurt on the part of John, maybe even anger. But John doesn't respond that way at all. As a matter of fact, he responds in exactly the opposite way. One Bible scholar puts it this way. The answer which the Baptist made may be said to mark the high point of his life and witness. Never before was he so tender, never before more humble and self-denying, more earnest and faithful. That's really true. This is a beautiful moment in the life of John. It's remarkable, but this scene of pride and jealousy and no doubt defense of their beloved mentor on the part of these disciples is actually going to provide John with a stage, a stage from which he will deliver the single longest recorded message that he ever preaches. And his message is going to have three points. And each point has but one goal, and that is to deflect attention away from himself and on to Jesus. That'll be the goal of his sermon. Remember again that everything that John the Apostle includes in his gospel has just one purpose as well. 
John told us about that in chapter 20, verse 30, 31, to point us to Jesus so that we'll know who he is. And when we know who he is, we'll believe in him unto eternal life, right? That's the whole goal of the gospel of John. So John the Baptist does that here in three beautiful ways, points us to Jesus. First, in response to his disciples saying, Master, that new guy is over there and he's, he's baptizing and everyone's flocking to him. John says in verse 27, and I'm guessing he says this with, with a smile, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven, unless God gives it to him. He says that the reason people are are leaving him and going to Jesus is that God is giving those people to Jesus. And he has every right to do that. He's the sovereign God of the universe. Romans 11.36 says that from God and through God and to God are all things. Everything starts with him and everything ultimately comes back to him. A person can't receive one thing, John says, not, not one person, not, not a whole crowd. You can't receive a whole crowd unless it's given you from God himself. John's point is that our lives are in God's hands. We don't call the shots. We're not in charge. God directs as he wills. And for John, that removes the temptation to pride and jealousy or nervously trying to protect what he's got. He doesn't have to do that was never his to begin with. That's how he sees it. This is all God's business. It's so easy to define ourselves in terms of success and, and to feel hurt when, when others succeed and, and we appear to fail. When we judge ourselves on the basis of success and failure and size and numbers or other human standards of measure, We're on dangerous ground, brothers and sisters. That's always dangerous ground. Pride and jealousy, hurt, insecurity will never be far away if our standard of measure is success and failure. God's in charge, not us. He alone decides who gets what and who gets how much. And so John says, you wonder why they're turning away from me and they're going to Jesus? It's God's doing. God's doing that. He's giving them to his son. I'm really okay with that. And then in verse 28, John tells his disciples that this is no surprise because God sent him for this very thing, that people would turn away from him and go to Jesus. That's why he's he's even there. It's always been the plan, John says. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. That's my job. God sent me for this. Prepare a people to receive Jesus and then give them to Jesus. Rise like a star in the wilderness and then burn out like a meteorite. Just as quick. That was always the plan. John knows it's the plan. And as it happens, his joy increases, as we're going to see in just a second, because it's now actually happening. He's watching it unfold before his very eyes. On your note page, 
Humility understands that God is absolutely sovereign about what he gives and to whom he gives it. Brothers and sisters, if we could settle into just that one truth, like John does, how very different our own sense of joy and peace would be even if things don't work out where we're successful. Maybe we appear to fail. We can still have great joy. It's God's business. It's his business. Well, as these disciples of John tell him that his ministry is shrinking and they're asking him what he's going to do about it, his next response is to say, Oh, you guys, listen. I'm just the best man at this wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom. It's his wedding, not mine. is isn't about me. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, we would call that the best man in our day and culture. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now what? It's complete. Great joy. Complete joy for John. Why? Why? Because the bridegroom, Jesus, is getting all of the attention. And he's okay with that. Because he's the best man. The cameras are flashing all in Jesus' direction. The invited guests are all looking at Jesus. The bird seed is flying in his direction. And, and, and the honeymoon, it's that way with Jesus. Nobody glances back at the silenced voice that's sitting on the church steps after the wedding. The voice of the shepherd has replaced the voice crying in the wilderness. And John's response to this, to this diminishing, this decreasing of his role and his ministry, great joy, great joy. my, My joy is complete. It couldn't be any better. That's awesome. That's beautiful. There's no pride in that. And, and, and why the mention of the bridegroom's voice? Why does the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, John, rejoice greatly over the bridegroom's voice? Well, certainly he would do that because that means that Jesus is here. He's hearing the voice of the bridegroom. So the, so the bridegroom is on scene. But I suspect that there's more going on than that. John the Baptist describes himself as the voice crying in the wilderness. His own voice had gathered a people together. But now they're all leaving. They're going to Jesus. Why? Because the people hear another voice, a greater voice, a stronger voice. They hear God's voice. John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. We'll get there someday. The <laughs> The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him for they know his what? They know his voice. The bridegroom has the bride because the bride knows the voice of her husband and she leaves John and goes to him and John rejoices in the voice of the bridegroom. Yes, because he's here, but even more because his voice is gathering the bride away from him and 
to the groom, to himself. It's impossible to miss the allusions here to Jesus and the church, right? The church is called the bride of Christ. And Jesus calls his bride to himself. And John gets to see that. And so what does he say? He says, the bridegroom who, the, who is the Messiah is calling his bride and she must go to him. Nothing in this life could bring me more joy than to see the bride going to the bridegroom. Not hanging out with me. There's no fear of being eclipsed by Jesus. This is exactly what John expects. It's just exactly what he wants. And so at the bottom of your note page, humility understands that Jesus is Lord and that he should be the center of attention and worship. And we say amen and amen. This great joy of mine, it's complete. It's complete. And it is this attitude, this perspective, this conviction on the part of John that enables him then to say with the deepest sincerity and humility in verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. If you'll flip your note page over. John realizes that he has reached the the zenith of his trajectory. I mean, he's gone as far as he's going to go. And it's going to be now down. He's going he's to come down. While Jesus' trajectory is what? Man, it's just starting. It's just starting. And it's going to go infinitely, infinitely beyond. And far from being saddened or disappointed by this, he sees this as absolutely necessary. In fact, the Greek word for must in verse 30 appears twice is a verb that carries with it the idea of intense compulsion. Jesus has to increase. He has to. Of necessity, he has to increase. And I, of necessity, must decrease. It's got to be this way. He becomes greater and I become smaller It can only be this way. That's John's conviction. And and were we to hear John say that in this moment, this is how it would have come across. Very strong, intense compulsion. It has to be like this. Brother, sister, fellow Christian, this is such an important and essential concept for you and me to grasp in our relationship with Jesus. He must increase. And we must, you got to say that with intensity. We must decrease. Your goal, my goal as a follower of Jesus, and this, this runs so counter to what our culture constantly promotes and pushes. Our goal is not self-actualization or self-fulfillment or self-realization or any other self-something that our culture says we're supposed to be pursuing. It's about he, Jesus, becoming greater than I, me, us, right? He greater than I. It's about us yielding up our will to whatever God has willed for us to be and do. 
and being okay with that. And that will always mean that Jesus increases and we decrease. Always. When he's greater in our lives, we live in God's full power. We have full joy. When we try to do our own thing and put ourselves first, we're limited by our own weaknesses, and that robs us of joy. Every time. I mean, John got it. The question is, do we get it? Do, do we get it? He must, become, he must become greater. And I must become smaller. It is necessary that this happen in your life and in my life if we really want to live in the place of true humility and experience real joy. This has to happen. John then proceeds to add his own commentary to explain why verse 30 is true, why he must increase and we must decrease. Actually, number one there, there's four thoughts under that. Number one there on your page at the top is not really John's thought, but it's true and it comes out of this passage. It's worth noting. Jesus must increase and we must decrease because our role in God's program is temporary at best. Would you agree with that? Our role is temporary. Back up in verse 24, we just kind of read through this and you, you would run right past this, maybe not even pause. But in verse 24, John the Apostle mentions that John the Baptist had not yet been put in prison. So what does that mean, church? He's about to be what? Put in prison. Very good. Yeah, he's about to be put in prison. And, 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 and soon he's going to be behind bars. King Herod Agrippa will have John arrested in just a short amount of time from now and throw him in prison because he doesn't like what John is preaching. And this is a good reminder for us, brothers and sisters, living well for Jesus doesn't guarantee us a trouble-free life. Right? Do we really believe that? I mean, there are a bunch of preachers across the country right now who promote an entirely different message. Believe in Jesus and you will what? You're going to be rich. You're going to be healthy. Everything is going to be roses. The grass will be green. Good things are on the way, right? Man, that, that's a lie. That is a, that's a lie. Soon John's going to be in prison and brothers and sisters, he's not going to be leaving prison. In fact, he'll be beheaded before his 35th birthday. Jesus must increase and we must decrease because our role in God's program is temporary at best. Even the greatest man ever born next to Jesus had but a passing part to play in the unfolding plans that God had to redeem sinners. How much smaller is our part? It's important, but how much smaller is our part? It's all about Jesus because he endures long after we pass off the scene, right? Yeah. Second, Jesus must increase, we must decrease. John says because our earthly perspective is so limited. Verse 31, he who comes from above, who's that? That's Jesus is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Who's that? That's us. That's John. 
He who comes from above, from heaven, is above all. John knew that he was a finite created being who, who no matter how much insight he possessed, he was limited by his createdness. Jesus was not limited like that because he wasn't created. He's eternal God. You remember John chapter 1, verse 1, when we stepped into this study? In the beginning, before there was time, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before time or space or anything else existed, there was Jesus with God the Father, He Himself being God. John says, oh, He must become greater and I must become smaller. Next, John says, Jesus must increase and we must decrease because our understanding of how God's plan will work out is so limited. Verse 32, He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Underline that phrase. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Now this is an amazing prophetic statement from this last Old Testament prophet. John says Messiah comes, but when he comes, he's not going to be received by very many people. They're going to reject him. They're going to reject God's son. That's the prophetic word. Now, if I was making this plan, everybody would receive Jesus. Everybody would welcome him. Everybody would believe in him if it was up to me to write the script of how this plan would work. But you know what? If, if, if my plan was the plan, Jesus would not have died for sinners on a cruel cross. He would not have paid the sinner's debt with his life. He would not have broken sin's chains, set the sinner free, and opened the gates of heaven by his resurrection if it had been up to me. If it was my plan, Jesus would have been received. Who in their wildest dreams could have said that this would be the way of salvation? Jesus would come, he would die, and he would rise again. But this is the way it was. Jesus must increase, we must decrease, because our understanding of how God's plans will work are just so limited. And then number four, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has, don't miss that, circle that word in your Bible, has, present tense, eternal life, life with God forever and ever. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains, present tense, on him. Jesus must increase, we must decrease, because God alone sets the way of salvation and final judgment. That's God's call. Salvation and how one gains it is not up to me, John says. That's up to God. It's all about Jesus being seen for who he is, Son of God, Savior of the world. John knew that no one would ever be saved by looking at him. He had no power to save anybody. But 
if he could point people to Jesus, away from himself and toward Jesus, some would be saved. Anyone who believes who Jesus is and what he's done has has eternal life. Don't you love that present tense? It's all about Jesus. He must increase. We must decrease for all of these reasons, John says. Well, church family, those were John's responses to his disciples' agitated concern that Jesus was succeeding and John was receding. But for John, this is all good. It's not just good. It's great. It's precisely how it needed to happen. So now, on the leading edge of a brand new year, what will our response be to these deeply profound and powerful words? He must increase, but I must decrease. What will you do with this sentence? What will I do with this sentence? What will we do with this statement as a church family? You know, you're an amazing group of people. I've been pastor with you for many, many years. I've, I've watched you. You take God seriously. You, you, you take your relationship with Jesus seriously. Would, would you, me knowing this about you, would you be willing to take up a not insignificant challenge today here with me? A challenge in the form of a commitment to pray a prayer daily, there's the key word, daily, all the way through 2020 that centers on the substance and the spirit and the power of John 3.30. Would you be willing to do that? To, to pray a prayer daily, make a commitment to pray a prayer daily every day in 2020 that centers on John 3.30. Now, I supplied the skeleton for this prayer on your note page. I'm confident that you can put meat on the bones. In fact, I'm going to allow, ask you to allow me to pray this prayer for us as our close today. And if it captures in some way the deep longings of your own heart, join me in making it your prayer your, for you and for your church daily this coming year. So join me now as I pray. And, and I'll just let you know right now, this is going to be an extended prayer. It's not our typical closing prayer. So just get ready. But you can put your note page away. You won't need it. There's no need to look at the screen. Heads bowed. Heart engaged, eyes closed, if that's what helps you, I'm going to lead us in prayer for 2020. Let's pray. Oh, God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, when John the Baptist made that beautiful declaration that he must increase and I must decrease, it completed his joy. His joy was full. And we know that this was only possible because in the secret place where no one else saw, your spirit worked in him until he no longer trusted or acted on any selfish, ambitious impulse within him. The desire of his heart was aligned with your heart. 
And Father, we want this too. We want Jesus to become greater in us and we become smaller in our own eyes. We want it to be all about him and not about us. And so to that end, we make this prayer to you as we begin this new year. First, increase your love for you, our love for you as the greatest treasure of our hearts. Decrease any idolatrous love of lesser things. If this doesn't happen, we'll be idolaters and, and our lives will be governed by something less than you. And we don't want that. We want nothing in our lives to come before you. Just as Exodus 20 verse 3 says, no other gods before you. And if we love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, man, we lose nothing. We, we only ever gain And so though it's a scary request to make of you, knowing what it might require, Heavenly Father, do whatever it takes this year to increase our love for your Son, Jesus, until he is truly our all in all, as Colossians 3.11 says. Second, increase our trust in your promises and decrease our trust in our ideas, perceptions, or experiences. If this doesn't happen, our circumstances are going to dictate our actions and we will rely on ourselves instead of you. We'll walk by sight and not by faith. We don't want that. Faith is what pleases you. In fact, without it, you tell us in Hebrews eleven six, we can't please you. We want faith. You tell us in Proverbs 3 that if we will trust you, you will order our steps in every arena of our lives. Oh, thank you for that promise. So do whatever it takes this year to help us walk by faith and not by sight. You may not be early, but Heavenly Father, you're never late. And there's no greater witness in this world than a Christian who really does trust you in all things. Let us be that. Which leads Heavenly Father to this request. Increase our passion to make Jesus known to others and decrease our passion for our own reputation or comfort. If this doesn't happen, our witness of Jesus in our life will be hesitant. It'll be timid. It'll be non-existent, perhaps. If what others think of us matters most, we will be ashamed of the gospel. We'll not be bold to proclaim it. And so we say, no, Father, help us love your son's glory more than we love what others think of us. Help us love others enough to set our reputation aside and share our Savior with them, even if they reject him and us. Do whatever it takes this year to increase our readiness to give the reason for the hope that we have to anyone who will hear it. 1 Peter 3.15 Next, increase our hunger for time with you in your word and in prayer and decrease our time dedicated to social media. It's an odd request to make of you, Heavenly Father, but we need to make this request of you because we live in a time and in a culture that has become so dependent, so addicted to cell phones and the Internet The average person in our circle, in our community, spends two and a half hours every day engaged in social media interaction. 
And that doesn't include video games and television. And all of this lures us away from time with you. It robs us of time with you. We need time with you. If your son made time for you going to quiet places to pray and be in your word, as Mark 135 says, how much more do we need this? Make us hungry for you, desiring to sit at your feet like Mary sat at Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 10, just wanting to be with you. Father, do whatever it takes to ensure that you get more of us each day than our cell phones and social media do. And increase our faith in your power to provide our material needs and decrease our fear-driven efforts to financially secure our futures. If this doesn't happen, we will not sacrificially give to the good work of advancing your kingdom, seeing the local church supplied and the Great Commission fulfilled. Jesus told us in Matthew 6 that we cannot love you and love money at the same time. It'll be one or the other, but it can't be both. Father, if we really believe, Philippians 4.19, that you'll supply all of our needs according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus, we will never fall into the trap of loving money. May our faith in your supply of our needs tomorrow set us wonderfully free from any bondage to clutching money today. Because then that allows us to know the joy and freedom of radical, generous giving today. And finally, Heavenly Father, increase our sense of the reality of the resurrection and decrease our fear of death. If this doesn't happen, we will spend inordinate time and money focused on that which is destined to return to the dust anyway, our physical lives. You sent Jesus to die for our sin, the sin that brings death. You raised him on the third day, and by him you have removed the sting of death from us, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Death died in Jesus' death, and now he is risen and alive. So he says to us, he is resurrection and life. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we believe that with all of our heart, we will be an unstoppable force for the spread of the gospel all over the world. Do whatever it takes this year for us to live more fully in the freedom of the resurrection. Absent is the fear of death. Yes, Father, Jesus must increase. He must increase. And we must decrease. If Jesus increases and we decrease, this will bring glory to him and to you and our joy like John the Baptist's, will be full. These things we ask in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Amen.